passage today comes from Luke chapter 19, and we're in verses 28 to 48. This will be familiar. Some of this is from the um, children's time, too. So Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 48. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which nobody's ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it, tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying that colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And he went along. as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, then the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They'll not leave one stone on another because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, But the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they couldn't find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. All right. So uh, happy Palm Sunday. Do you say happy before Palm Sunday? Palm Sunday. Um, uh, so I'm an academic. I, I work at Malone. So it's weird for me to do something without giving some references to things. So I want to point out not all of these are original thoughts. Most of them aren't. Um, I want to point you to Tim Keller's book, Jonah, the Prodigal Prophet. Um, it's been really influential in the shaping of this idea, as well as the Bible Project, which I will also make reference to throughout the um, Uh, my message here. Um, But yeah, when I signed up to give the message for today, Palm Sunday, um, I first had this one thought. Uh, I've heard a million Palm Sunday sermons, right? I guess that's being a little dramatic, right? I'm I'm 35, so I've probably heard maybe 30 or so that I'm aware of to some extent, right? Um, So not millions. But um, even still, the core of my thought was a problem to me, right? I've heard many Palm Sunday sermons. And it's one of those many stories in the Bible that we often get a bit numb to, right? Um, We know what to expect, so when we revisit it, whether or not we're aware of it, we try and find what we expect. Um, It's something that's really hard to, like, take off, right? Um, So I'm curious, you know, what is it that you might expect from the Palm Sunday story? Uh, Maybe it's uh, that we should welcome Jesus, right? Um, well, that's true. That's true. 
Uh, but I, I sadly have some bad news. I don't think that this is part of what the gospel is trying to say in the whole story of Holy Week. Um, what about maybe we should welcome Jesus into our lives like the crowd did? In light of the rest of the week, I don't think we should do that either, actually. Um, maybe that we, like the crowd, are just as apt to discard Jesus if he doesn't fit our political hopes, right? Um, that's certainly true. I'm just as likely as anybody to try and make Jesus into my own image rather than accepting Jesus for who he truly is. Maybe instead we just focus on the donkey, right? Like, that's pretty cool. Like, that's a, it's a unique image, right? You know, it's prophecy fulfilling. It's like, look at this. He's coming in as a king, but on a donkey. It's, you know, it's ironic. Kids like donkeys. We like donkeys, right? Um, well, the Bible Project has tipped me off to a way to read the Bible that has really illuminated the beauty and intricacy of Scripture for me in the past couple of years. Um, that the Hebrew Scriptures, as in the Old Testament, and the New Testament, the Bible as we know it as a whole, is a unified story that leads to Jesus. That's a simple-sounding catchphrase, right? But in all honesty, it has really big implications for how we view Scripture. Um, so what if we take this seriously, this framework of reading the Bible, right? Um, what if we try and read the Bible sympathetically to this idea that it's a unified story that leads to Jesus? What can we learn about the nature of God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, and us, in these stories? Uh, so let's look at the two major components of this framework. Again, I'm an academic, I'm sorry. Uh, of reading the Bible, first let's start with the ending, with the leading to Jesus part. Okay? Sometimes scripture directly tells us about Jesus, like in a prophetic way, right? Uh, in the Old Testament, of how he will come, and he'll, how he'll be the Messiah. Think Isaiah maybe some of the prophets as well. Obviously, this is a portion of the Bible that leads to Jesus, right? Um, you could say that this is an explicit way that the Bible is talking about Jesus. Um, but it's not always explicit, um, going right out and telling you about the Messiah to come. Sometimes it's implicit or implied, right? Um, whoops. Uh, so sometimes it tells us about Jesus and the nature of God by what is lacking in the particular story. When God asks a person to do something on behalf of God, but that person is an anti-hero of sorts, the person tasked with the job is inadequate, or unwilling, or stubbornly getting it wrong, or worse, wanting to get it wrong, right? Um, we could see this as an example in Jonah, right? Um, so what about, too, in this, uh, the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. What about the unified part? What could that mean? It's not enough that the scriptures lead to Jesus. They are not standalone stories that you should read just in a vacuum that point to the Messiah, but that they have a connection, right? That at times, in the words of Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, that the authors almost wink at you in subtle ways to allude to previous portions of the Bible. Something to keep in mind when reading the Bible is that the biblical authors know the Hebrew scriptures so well that they can't help but to put little breadcrumbs that lead the reader back to old stories. You could say that the authors being so saturated in the Hebrew scriptures can't help but to make these connections, connecting earlier patterns, figures, motifs, and interweaving them beautifully into other stories. Like a good movie soundtrack, right? 
Um, we all know like different themes in movies, different characters have different sounds or songs. And when you're watching a movie, you're like, oh, they want me to think of Darth Vader or Luke Skywalker or Aragorn or whatever, you know, right? Um, so like a good movie soundtrack, there are certain notes or musical themes that bi the biblical authors will play in their stories to remind the reader of the story of the garden or the Abrahamic promise or Moses on Mount Sinai, etc. You get the point, right? They want us to do this when we're reading the Bible. You know? Do you guys know this meme? Okay, Aubrey does. All right. This is an internet meme um, of, that just basically says, when you notice something from something else, and you're making a connection. Okay. All right. Uh, they want us to do that. Uh, so what could the story of Jonah have to do with Palm Sunday? Um, right? So let's talk about Jonah and Jesus on Palm Sunday. So let's do a quick recap. Okay. There's a lot up here, but we're going to quick recap Jonah just to catch you back up. Jonah... Old Testament, Israelite prophet, an anti-prophet of sorts, right? Uh, is told by God to go to Nineveh. They're Assyrian bad people, right? Israel's brutal enemy. They're the bad guys, right? Tell them to repent of their violence. Simple, simple, simple message, right? Jonah says no. He runs away. He'd rather die than do this. So he tosses himself overboard, right, in the sea, God sends a big fish, it saves him three days in the fish's belly. Does he have a change of heart? We'll see. Uh, spit out of the big fish, goes to Nineveh, half-hearted declaration of God's message once. He sits outside of Nineveh with his popcorn ready to watch Nineveh burn, and it doesn't. Nineveh repents, Jonah pouts, and God asks a question, and I think the question alludes to that God cares about all of creation not simply Israel. God has bigger plans than just Israel. So what can we see in the comparison of these two stories of Jonah and Jesus' triumphal entry with Palm Sunday? What can Jesus on Palm Sunday and Jonah tell us about God, about his son, and about God's desires for the world? So let's do some comparisons, okay? In the two stories, both of our main characters, both called by God to go to a great, or a better word, big city, right? Okay, both Jonah and Jesus called to go to Jerusalem and or Nineveh, right? They both, though, have a unique difference. They have a contrasting desire to go to that city. Jonah, as we talked about, does not want to go to Nineveh, you know, um, he has, there's a violent threat of going to that city for Jonah. Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh because he logically believes that they would kill him, right? It makes sense that he would think that, right? Jesus knows Jerusalem will kill him, yet he still has a great desire to go. Before Palm Sunday in Matthew 23, 37 through 39, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and, a, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Palm Sunday, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They had contrasting routes or routes on the way to their big city. Jonah was called and called and called to go to Nineveh, Yet he refused many times and did a very roundabout way 
to eventually wind up there. Jesus had a great desire to go to Jerusalem, as we just said in, uh, in the previous scripture there. Um, but he knew that God didn't want him to go just yet. There was a specific time for him to revisit Jerusalem in order for him to fulfill his destiny, right? They both actually had similar messages to their great big city, right? The message was to stop their violence. Um, it's the message given in both cities. Obviously, that's the message given to, to, for Jonah to go to the Ninevites. But it's also the message that for Jesus to Jerusalem. Jesus says in Luke 19, 41 through 44, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. We know in the rest of the Holy Week story uh, whom the crowd chooses instead of Jesus. They choose a violent insurrectionist over Jesus. Tensions and upcoming Jewish versus Roman wars were starting to get to a boiling point at this time in history. Jesus knew this. He foretold it. Jesus felt it. He experienced this major political pressure to fight against that. The Israelites will continue in their desire even after the resurrection for earthly power, resulting in Rome destroying Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's the prophetic word that Jesus is speaking about in this previous passage. So what about being just outside of the city? Um, after Jonah gives his half-hearted prophetic message, he sits outside of Nineveh looking expectantly for Nineveh's destruction. Because in his mind, obviously, God would want Israel's enemy destroyed. If Israel are God's people, then, logically, Israel's enemies are God's enemies. Enemies deserve death and destruction. They deserve to feel the pain that Israel felt under their oppression. Jonah is outside of the city, wanting violence. After Jesus gives his prophetic word in the temple and to the teachers of the law and performs the Last Supper, he goes outside of Jerusalem in the Garden of Gethsemane and prayerfully awaiting the beginning of his betrayal, knowing that violence is coming, but not on Jerusalem, but on him. We know that Palm Sunday is a tragic story, the beginning of a difficult week leading up to Good Friday, we know that later the crowd that welcomed Jesus will admonish Pilate to release Jesus Barabbas over Jesus of Nazareth. Um, so Barabbas um, means son of the father. And it's ironic that God's people are given the choice between two competing Jesuses, one who truly is the son of the father and one that is that by name alone. A counterfeit Jesus um, and scholars believe that Barabbas was the son of a prominent Jewish leader, and Jesus Barabbas was an insurrectionist involved in an attempt to overthrow the Roman occupation of Jerusalem. This is the kind of Jesus that would rid Israel of Roman occupation. He would be king if he could, a strong, violent king to restore Israel to its true glory, not this second-class occupied nation. This is a true pro-Israel candidate, Jesus Barabbas would easily win this election over Jesus of Nazareth. This is not just who the crowd wanted outside of Pilate's office, though. 
This is the kind of king that the crowd wanted all the way back on today on Palm Sunday. This was the kind of king that they thought they were getting on Palm Sunday. They told us that in their chant as they waved their palm branches. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is from Psalm 118. It's an ascension psalm, a psalm that used was sang to usher in the king into Jerusalem. Jesus knew they'd welcome him that way during his previous visit to Jerusalem, as I stated in the Matthew scripture. And I think tragically, Jesus also knew exactly what they meant by it. They wanted King David. That's the Hebrew scripture figure that the crowd wanted. David, a king to make Israel great, to build a strong army, establish borders, make strong, and get rid of those foreigners. We want a king is what they would say. The crowd, and also too, Hosanna means save us, right? Save us from the Roman occupation. Um, the crowd on Palm Sunday wanted King David. The crowd also had a Jonah mindset as to who God is. God obviously wants what we want. These Romans are the enemy and they must be destroyed. God, send us a king to do your will because it's obviously what we think is what you need to do. Destroy Rome, destroy Nineveh. But Jesus wasn't coming to Jerusalem as a David. God had a better plan. Lucky for them and for us, God doesn't always give us what we want. Instead, God's grace looks like in the story on Palm Sunday, like the crowd got a Jonah. But not the Jonah from the book of Jonah. Flawed, uncaring, spiteful, proud, hungry for Ninevite blood. On Palm Sunday, Jesus comes as a redeemed Jonah, maybe even a perfect Jonah. The Jonah if God put himself in the Jonah slot. This Jonah is stubbornly set on forgiveness and wholeness. In God's unending grace, he gave much more than Jonah to save them. God gave himself in Jesus. So you might be listening uh, to this message not fully convinced that we should be revisiting Jonah on Palm Sunday, thinking maybe it's a stretch. Um, and, to, and to you who might be thinking that, you might be right. Um, I, I've actually been recovering from a cold, so I've had a lot of cough syrup over the past few weeks. So maybe it's not very, maybe you're sitting here thinking, what is he talking about? Um, but I do think that there's a fresh way to view Palm Sunday and revisiting Jonah's story. It's something to ponder and to chew on. Uh, it's at least better than hearing just another one of the, our millionth Palm Sunday sermons we've heard, right? Um, so let's begin to land the plane, right, um, with the ending of Jonah, okay? So this is how Jonah ends, Jonah 4, 9 through 11. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Jonah said, it is. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And in a true Jonah sense, I would also like to end this message with a question of my own. What could this final passage in Jonah tell us about God's ultimate Holy Week plan?
At the end of Jonah, it says, people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And in Luke 23 on the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 